Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Sports Professor Rick Harrow, and welcome to a special edition of Beyond the Scoreboard, the show that goes way beyond the trillion-dollar business of sports, deal-making, marketing, business, law, a whole host of stuff, everything other than the scores. You want the background? You want the behind the scenes? You got it. If you want all of the items of 15 to watch every week, we include five big philanthropic issues and five sports tech issues. Take a look at NBC Washington at Riccaro, Riccaro.com. Join us on uh, our Apple podcast, Google Play, Audio Boom, Stitcher, iTunes, anywhere. We have a special treat for you this week because we have basically the best of at the beginning of the football season from some of our interviews with some of the highest ranking people in sports, not only uh, people who are kind of relevant as the commissioners of their respective leagues, but also tie-ins to some special people. So without further ado, NFL, by the way, getting the top billing everywhere. Packers, Bears, season opener right here and 37 corporate sponsors activating around the NFL in support of 50 brands. An increase of 35 additional spots to 64 themed TV spots celebrating the NFL's 100th anniversary. Verizon relies on the power of the NFL to help with its 5G rollout activations in 12 stadiums. New sponsor Lowe's has two national ads and will sell NFL licensed products in-store and online. Gatorade, the league's oldest corporate sponsor, has Todd Gurley and J.J. Watt in, in, in uh, uh, spots. And the sponsors will avail more than 109 digital spots, and TV and digital ads will employ more than 100 active and retired NFL players. Clearly important. But it's not just here. It's across the pond. 55% increase in tickets, not only because we have more games than ever before, four in London split between the Wembley and Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, but Mexico, for example, as well as other places. The NFL continues to grow, and the annual NFL preview by StubHub shows the league sales coming from outside the U.S. increased by 19% since the start of last season. Fans from 54 countries using the ticketing platform to buy tickets. So it's not just domestic, but it's also international. And we begin by talking about something that's gripped the headlines over the past week. The unexpected, some would say shocking, retirement of former Indianapolis Colts quarterback Andrew Luck. I'm going to tell you that I've had some uh, very uh, specific relationships with Andrew and his father Oliver. His father's contributed to our sport business handbook. And in 2011, we had the uh, uh, honor of of interviewing Heisman runner-up Andrew Luck, the Maxwell Award winner, first-team All-American, academic All-American, and the projected first pick of the draft, which he was by the Colts later on that year. 
as you listen to the snippets of the interview from my show Sportfolio on Bloomberg, thanks to Bloomberg for giving us the opportunity to hear this perspective, you may not be surprised or shocked if you hear Andrew Luck. He's a Renaissance man. He understands architecture, business, and it's not surprising that no matter what his reasons are, his body and his mind come first. So let's start the special edition by giving you the snippets of eight years ago, Andrew Luck. Indeed, even Peyton Manning doesn't hold a degree in architectural design from Stanford Engineering, but Andrew's academic passions and athletic interests developed hand in hand. I love stadiums and arenas and you know and baseball parks and and coliseums or what name you. That's uh, I think that's that's sort of why I got interested in architecture. Was as a kid, you know, going around with my father who worked for NFL Europe to all these great you know stadiums in Europe, whether it's you know the Allianz Arena in Munich or you know the you know the great Manchester United, Old Trafford, all those all those neat stadiums. Way in on kind of the. The, the, the concept of building a stadium today. It's important you reach fans and amenities, yeah. but you also have as many events as possible. Well, I think you know, it has to be a, a, a widespread arc when you're building a stadium. You have to have the, the ability to, to make it a basketball arena and, and maybe cut it in half, or, and sight lines are so important. You have to, I think, cater to, to a lot of people, and you, know, you don't want to build a generic run-of-the-mill stadium. Everybody seems to want the, uh, the new next, next best thing. Nothing is generic or run-of-the-mill for Andrew the student. His intellectual curiosity extends to the business he's about to enter. George Foster and Roger Noel, great professors at the, the GSB, the Stanford Graduate School of Business, they, they opened up a couple spots in their sports management and sports business classes for, for some of the football guys. So I'm definitely interested in, in, in taking, taking one of their classes and, and learning about it. And I've heard from a lot of guys, you know, guys my age that have taken it in the years past, and they've, they've learned a lot and very interesting. It brings a lot of great guys in. I feel very blessed to be in the situation I am now. You know, it's, it's a great opportunity, and I'm, I'm not going to complain about, about something because hopefully I just – I hope I just want to be paid to play football, you know, and that'd be enough for me. Andrew Luck will certainly be picked to play football and very likely with the first selection in the draft. And he's well positioned to parlay that success into endorsement deals and business opportunities. And as you might imagine, the Lucks do have a strategy for that. Andrew Luck has marketers as well as scouts bullish on his prospects at the professional level. Part of his appeal, he's genuinely determined to stay genuine. What is the IPO that is Andrew Luck? What's the brand look like? How would you sell yourself? Oh, you know, I don't know. Uh... As an NCAA student athlete, I stay away from, <laughs> from trying to sell myself or make money on myself. He's proven that already. Luck could have turned professional a year ago, but chose to return to Stanford University for his senior season. He readily admits it may not have been the best business decision. It was more of an emotional decision. Uh, and, and to be honest, it, it wasn't too hard to make it. You know, I, I felt very comfortable coming back. I, I wanted to sort of prolong having to grow up for another year. I was enjoying college, enjoying the, my teammates, and you know, wanted, to, wanted to finish up and get the degree. So it, it was more of an emotional decision. And you had four million people giving you advice, I'm sure, on what to do. But what was the best bit of advice you actually got about that? You know, probably from my dad. Just he said, to be honest, do what you want to do. <laughs> you know, as simple as that. You know, and you know, do do what you're not going to lose sleep over. And you know, that's what I did. So, what do you want the brand to stand for? What do I want the brand to stand for? You know, just try a positive image, do the right thing. Uh, you, know, you know, stay out of trouble and then stay out of the negative. You know, sort of headlines. I'm not perfect by any means, you know, I, I go out and I do some stupid things every now and then, you know, with my friends and, you know, it's almost, you know, a, a click away from a phone camera for, you know, you'd be on the internet, you know, doing something stupid forever, I guess. If Andrew Luck fulfills his athletic potential and keeps his image clean, his earning power will be staggering. Quarterbacks like Tom Brady and Peyton Manning have each made over $100 million in salary and endorsements in their playing careers. 
And as the example of Johnny Unitas shows, a quarterback's brand value can endure for decades. But luck may have advantages even those icons didn't have. Going to school in Silicon Valley, it's great. You know, I've been to talks for all these great entrepreneurs, you know, great, you know, venture capitalists, and they're, they're all around, you know, the area. So, so listening to them talk, and you know, I'm sure I'll, I'll be able to go back when, once I start playing, you know, on the next level and, and get some great advice from, from guys there. So if Andrew Luck were an IPO, would he be an unqualified buy? Well, now let's get to it. We have a best of special with a commissioner perspective. First, the commissioner of the XFL, because of the tie-in to his son, Oliver Luck has been the athletic director at West Virginia. He was the head of the World League of American Football, certainly important as you see how international the NFL has been, been with the NCAA, been the Houston Dynamos, and now he's the president of the XFL. So let's give you the best of with Oliver Luck the commissioner that presides over all of football with us today. Incredibly proud, a long and illustrious career. Uh, Paul, uh, Roger, no, it's Oliver Luck. Ah. Oliver, Oliver Luck, the commissioner of the XFL, and I'm certainly not cynical about it. Don't mean to minimize it. You take a look at some of the information I'm serious about. It. This is a league that's on the way to success, largely because of Oliver's even temperament, certainly the capital, but his bridge building skills as well. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. Thank the morning of June 4th, June 5th, whatever it is, 2018. Clearly life-changing for you for a lot of reasons. Vince and you had a lot of conversations before that, but that was your announcement. So give me your mindset as to why you did it and how you feel now. Sure. So I was working at the NCAA, as you know, you know, uh, the EVP of regulatory affairs, basically a number two to uh, to Mark Hammond, whom I really appreciate. He has a hard job. It's tough running college athletics. And I was aware that Vince had made an announcement last January that the league was going to be relaunched, but I didn't really pay much attention to it, quite honestly. So one of his guys reached out and said, hey, would you take a meeting with Vince? And I said, sure. Uh, you know, I didn't know him, didn't met, I had never met him. I uh, was sort of impressed with his entrepreneurial bent in building up WWE into a you know, publicly traded billion-dollar-a-year company. It's remarkable. So he reached out to you? He reached out to me basically. out of thin air. And, uh, you know, I ran NFL Europe, so yeah, there's not, it's a pretty select group, you know, that's run professional football leagues and, and started them from scratch, right? So uh, anyway, I sat with him, and over the course of a couple of days, and, you know, I wanted to really understand why he wanted to do this and would he do it, you know, as the Brits would say, in a proper fashion, right? right? Uh, because the first time around wasn't good. Football wasn't good. It was gimmicky. And, you know, I, I wouldn't want to be part of a bad football league with lots of gimmicks. I don't think the American public likes gimmicks, right? right? Particularly when it comes to something important like football. Yeah, football right. So, um, you know, he convinced me that uh, he was going to, you know, hire somebody that knew football and could build that league the way it should be built. And, you know, everything I've experienced in the last six, seven months is I've been on board has been just that. He's given me all the rope I need, as I say, to hang myself. Presumption of, and you're not, presumption of uh, the he hates you days, and now you have until early 2020 to prove that wrong in eight cities. His comment, or yours, about reimagining football, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, so what he wants is a up-tempo game, right? Um, fewer stoppages, fewer breaks, right? You know, the, the college and pro balls sometimes can go on forever, right? Well, there's a good reason they're commercial. Well, that's that's that's, yeah, that's yeah, true. That's yeah. true. But yeah, think of all the you know, split screen that's now yeah, taking place, right? So you know, up tempo game. Um, you know, uh, he wants to be innovative in, in what we do, right? So uh, you know, shorter breaks, so and get it all done in three hours. I remember back in 
the old days, the yeah. 1970s or the 80s or the 90s when you know a game just really got done in under three hours. Right. So uh, I think you know the talent pool of players and coaches is pretty deep, pretty rich, pretty broad. And then we can we can find guys that are able to you know deliver on that promise, right? So um, we've got uh, well, very soon we'll be announcing our broadcast partners. Uh, we have four games a weekend, right? Eight, eight teams, four games a weekend. All those games will be broadcast every last one, either terrestrially or fully distributed cable. So we're going to have multiple, some multiple partners. Multiple partners. We're going to have some great broadcast deals. We're not far from naming uh, our head coaches, right? Uh, I've got four signed and uh, four more to come because uh, I'm acting like uh, the owner of each one of these teams, right? Really? Because, you know, Vince owns them. And, and it's not as if you're not experienced doing it. Yeah, I, I hired coaches over yeah, in Europe, right. you know, uh, multiple times, right, right. with our league. So uh, it, it's, you know, it's, it's coming together. We have the gift of time. I wouldn't have taken this job, Rick, you know, if Vince said, you got three months and we got we got to play. I'd said, nope, don't want it. <laughs> you know, yeah. you need time. You need time in any part, startup. Part of it, yeah, any startup. Any startup. But part of it is the nuts and bolts of the widgets and everything you need to stay in Part of it is the reimagining, the reimagining. That's right. Basically. That's right. So we've taken all these ideas. We have a different kickoff we're looking at. We have a different punt we're looking at. We're looking at a 25-second clock versus the 40-second clock. We're looking at a different overtime, right? We're looking at having an eighth referee. Yeah. <laughs> what a nice, novel idea, yeah. you know. That, it's a replay. It's, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so all that stuff. But you have to test it as well, you know. And so we're testing it already with uh, junior colleges back in December of this past year. We're working with the Spring League. Uh, might be yeah. familiar to you. The You're called Football League. Right. These are all, you know, we basically borrow these, these uh, leagues' play for three or four days yeah. and run 55 of our new kickoffs to make sure we've got it right and you know, punts and all that kind of stuff. You, you th- I've always found it interesting. My dad was a chemical engineer and he used to preach about the importance of R&D to DuPont where he worked. Think about the NFL, 14, 15 billion dollar a year company. There's not much R&D going on. Yeah, <laughs> right? right? You know, or college football, right? very popular, but not much R&D. Going. So we want to make sure we test these things as best we can before we, you know, etch them in our rule book. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. say, what, what gives you the reason you had the presumption of failure. You know, tell us why this is sure. Uh, it's really just a couple things: capital, money matters, right? Any startup, and you know, Vince is putting uh, a minimum of five hundred million bucks behind this venture. Time, which you know, which we we, we have and the ability to plan. Uh, very powerful partners, which you know we, we'll be announcing very soon. And I think the other thing is this: disciplined decision making. So, you know, think about the USFL. I remember going to Houston Gambler games. The place is the place was rocking, right? The old Astrodome. If they had Jerry Argovitz, if they had stayed in the spring had disciplined decision making that would be a very valuable property today but they didn't right. Right? they Can made talk about Donald Trump or no we should <laughs> but uh, you know they moved to the fall that was a bad decision lack of decision making yeah. discipline but uh, that's the vision we have right yeah. so you know you built but Lamar Hunt was a uh, you know, very interested in NFL Europe when I was running the league right. uh, and Lamar used to say to me Oliver you always have to remember who you are but more importantly who you're not so we have to remember who we're not we're not the National Football League and never will be right but we can be the XFL and build our league in the spring, bind our own business, if you will, have good relations with everybody, right, in the football world, because I think it's all important. Uh, but I think we can build up uh, brands that people kind of like and watch and follow. So, what about MLS? And then we'll, we'll... Oh, I, I'm a huge fan of what Don Garber has done. You know, he, if you go back and look at where they were when he took that job in, I don't know, two, 2000 maybe, where they are today, it's, it's incredible. The value of the franchise is the quality of the league. It's got ways to go still. Still has got to figure out how to break that TV question, right? You know, it's not destination view for the vast majority of people. And that's that's a, that's a challenge. NFL is. And XFL hopes to be destination.
and viewing me. But you know, MLS has to kind of in, increase the opportunity for for the TV broadcast and then expand their audience. Um, what does it feel like when people stop you on the street and say, uh, "How's Andrew? Can you get me to Andrew?" No, they say, "Tell Andrew I got him on my fantasy team, so he needs to throw a bunch." You know, I say, "Do you think he cares about that?" <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, really, I really, I really, no, no, that's, that's the question. That, right? That's yeah. the question I get. Yeah, I said, "Hey, I'm great. Good, good job." But you know, I'm well, not going to. Ladies and gentlemen, context. <laughs> hey, by the way, he is one of our uh, contributors to the Sport Business Handbook. You hear a lot more about it. But, you know, key people in the industry. Uh, Paul Tegnick who's in there. Steve Russ in there. And on and on and on. So uh, it's as good as it gets. Uh, Andrew Luck. Oh, to Oliver Luck. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate it. You bet. My pleasure. Rick Carl, speak with you soon. Our next commissioner is a good buddy. He's the commissioner of the National Lacrosse League, Nick Sakevich. But he's also been the author and deal maker for stadiums in Harrison, New Jersey, in Chester, Pennsylvania. He was the uh, MLS guy for the Red Bulls and for the Philadelphia Union. But he's now taken the NLL to an entirely different level. Let's get his perspective Nick Sakevich. Nick Sakevich, one of the foremost entrepreneurs of our generation. How's that for an intro? Oh wow, Rick, that was beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. I'm humbled. I'm humbled by that. Thank not the first time you'll be humbled by anything I say, and certainly not the last. So for sure, he, well, I look yeah. forward to it. Well, listen, you can and you deserve it because you're one of the guys that has crossed over into two major sports. So you know, Nick Sakevich, the person, uh, grew up uh, in uh, American soccer, broadly defined, then went to France. So a little bit of your snapshot of your stellar playing career. Uh, not not stellar at all. Um, born at the wrong time. Grew up uh, playing in the nor- northern part of New Jersey in all the ethnic leagues. Um, had had some success at the professional level, but had a very very short career. It just wasn't fashionable to play soccer in the 80s in the U.S. Uh, I tried my uh, skills in Europe, but uh, that that didn't work out. I did um, I did meet my wife though in Portugal. And my last You're also year, a hero. So was, you're also a hero in northern France, right? Aren't you a hero yeah. in northern France? Didn't you play there for like a no. week? Hero? No, not at all. I was a I was a third string goalkeeper trying to make it in a very very competitive environment. But but you know what? I got I got a, a beautiful wife out of my soccer career, and I'm very thankful for that. That's, that's probably the, more important thing of all of that. But you know, the interesting career, and you know, we crossed paths getting the the Red Bull Stadium done in Harrison, and then then you know parlaying that knowledge for you into building the Philadelphia Union and uh, the whole world of the MLS. Talk a little bit about that. No, just a great run of 21 years. You know, started as uh, one of the founding executives of the league uh, back in the L.A. office of the league office in 1995 and helped launch the league and then um, ran a couple of teams in Tampa and New York, and then you and I met. Um, in that incredibly difficult project mm. called Red Bull Arena. But I'm very proud to say uh, we, we did a great job there, Rick. Yes, that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. Uh, great stories that roll up under the uh, title of you can't make this stuff up, but we right. got that building done. And and then I uh, I took my I took everything you taught me, hmm. uh, and and I, I went to Philadelphia, and um, and really uh, built a beautiful building right on the river of uh, the Delaware River in, in uh, Chester, Pennsylvania. And and I'm really proud of that. We had a had a great 21 year run, and and uh, now I'm uh, now I'm in another sport. I'm uh, trying to do it all over again. Well, but the doing it all over again is, you know, different sport, different venue, maybe different rules, different game. 
same mentality, same entrepreneurial skill. Uh, without talking yet about the duties of the commissioner of the National Cross League, what, what business skills, this is a business show, you think you kind of learned and possessed that made this transition to running a different kind of league possible? Yeah, you know, the the business skills are very similar, you know, both both uh, opportunities. And, and by the way, I never thought I'd get another once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And, and lo and behold, the National Lacrosse League owners came along and presented one to me. So I'm very fortunate in that regard. But the business, the business acumen in, in building, whether it's soccer league, soccer teams in, in a country at a time when no one really cared about the sport or wanted to care about the sport, and now in lacrosse, very much the same. You know, I, I, I'm taking into the National Lacrosse League a, a five-year strategic plan, which we, which I spent the last hundred days developing and diving into, and and that's what we needed in Major League Soccer. And and when we were developing the league and launching the league and building each of the teams, you, you've got to have a strategic plan. And this one was with the National Lacrosse League was was very interesting because we we have so much to accomplish with the league you know i needed to step back and really take a look at the compulsory things that we needed to do to really build the foundation of the league going forward so the five-year strategic plan is built on five key pillars for the league those being um, we've got to build a digital platform we've got to focus on expansion and bring more teams in the league and bring more strategic thinkers and, and wealthy sports owners to the table to help us grow the league. There's a grassroots component, there's a team services component, um, and then there's a commercial uh, NLL 2.0 uh, commercial sponsorship platform and, and a long-term broadcast strategy. And those are the things that really we, you know, we started Major League Soccer with many, many years ago, 20, 21 plus years ago. But it's that strategic planning, uh, the discipline to stick to the strategic plan, the, and then the people. It's all about the people, getting, getting really good, smart, strategic, thoughtful, experienced sports people to help build a professional professional league or, or an individual team. But I'm in the process now of looking for really good men and women to help me, uh, help me build this league. Well, and, you know, the interesting thing about all of this is that Nick Sikiewicz, by the way, commissioner of the National Lacrosse League, capital C, not just some, you know, dump on the highway, this guy is the real thing. Uh, you know, the, the bottom line of all of this is you could fill in the blanks and you could talk about a strategic plan, and I guess you could argue that Garber years ago and – Pete Rozelle before that, you know, market, uh, well-heeled owners, uh, long-term broadcast strategy, corporate partners. It, it's essentially uh, the same kind of conceptual road uh, map for success as it is in all other sports, isn't it? It really is, and, and roadmap is exactly what it is. You, you, you can't get to where you want to go unless you, you have a, a map or a plan on how to get there, and, and I'm a big believer in that. And that doesn't mean that that plan is carved in concrete. It, it, in fact, the, the, the opposite. You lay out that plan, and you, and you develop it, and you tweak it, and you polish it a, along the way, but, but you've got to have a, a long-term strategic plan. And, and also the other thing I learned in Major League Soccer is – we did it in chunks there, so it wasn't it wasn't a twenty year plan or it wasn't a thirty year plan. That's not realistic. But we did it in segments, and and we're going to do the same thing in the National Lacrosse League. So we have a five year plan. Now that five year plan in year two or three might get accelerated, and then another five year plan comes along, and 
and you build it. Because in sports, the sports model, the sports business model is also part analytical and business acumen, but it's also socioeconomic. You've got a, a growing sport that lots of kids are playing, but you've got to nurture those kids because you, your, your, market, your market's growing. You know, sports like baseball and football, 100-plus years old, there's multiple generations sitting in the stands and watching on TV. In soccer and now lacrosse, we didn't have multiple generations, and we have to but – we, but we have the good, a good thing, which is lots of kids playing the game. So part of our strategy, and you'll notice one of the core tenets of the strategy is grassroots – We've got to be in front of the fans of the future because it's socioeconomic. Mom and dad take the kids. The kids grow up. The kids become mom and dad. They take the kids, and the parents become the grandparents. And it's very much um, a cycle like that, and you've got to go through 10 or 20 years of a cycle to build a fan base. I know you real well, and one of those things that you're required in that plan is something that very hard for type A's to possess, certainly you, and that's patience. So how do, you, how do you deal with the fact that the success of this can be measured in relatively small increments, but the ultimate success is years and years away? Yeah, well, that's, you know, patience and, uh, and balanced discipline is, is really important in this role. And, you know, I'm, I'm 10 years older than when we worked together um, back, in, back in the day in the New York area. Um, so I, I've, learned, I've learned that patience is a virtue. Um, but, uh, but I think deep down, you know, I, w- I want things to happen quicker. So I've just got to – you just got to find the balance between patience and thoughtfulness and, and not knee-jerk decisions. Um, and I've definitely learned that over the years. There's no question I'm much more wiser in my – 50s than I was in my 30s. <laughs> well, you know, you were pretty wise in your 30s, and now that you're 55, I, I feel really good because, you know, I'm up there too, and then I looked at your bio, and, and, and that's wonderful that you now get the <laughs> AARP card too as well, right? Does that bother you? <laughs> not at all. Not at all. That's a, that's yeah. a great demographic, in fact. Uh, yeah, well, they're supposed 55, to be the ones. 55 is the new 45. Yeah, well, A, and B, they're the ones supposed to have all the money, so, you know, God bless us all. Here is my other question, too. Does it... Does it frustrate you, bother you, um, you always talk about a, a sign of a really interesting upside opportunity, that there are still some people that don't take uh, niche sports seriously, broadly defined? I, I don't mean it necessarily NLL, but I mean it necessarily everything except the big four. Uh, I, you know, bother, and, uh, bother me, no. Um, uh, I'm glad it's there though because it's the fuel that feeds the feeds the fire. You know, I don't know if you remember Rick, but years and years ago they they said we couldn't build a stadium in New York. And oh yeah, no, right. We sure. built the stadium in New York, and then when I came to Philadelphia, you know, everybody rolled their eyes and said, "You're going to build what? Where? And play what in it?" And uh, I built a beautiful stadium, and uh, it, it it packs the house every game. So I love when people say you can't do something because that's just the fuel that feeds the fire and and you got to have that you got to embrace that if you're doing this kind of stuff um, are your listen, o- are your owners patient do they follow your uh, business plan do they understand what this is going to take well of course not uh, owners <laughs> shouldn't be patient and and I and I'm like an owner so I always I always go into a project uh, acting and feeling and thinking like an owner and you shouldn't be patient but you also have to uh, know and understand and it's my job to educate our ownership 
as to why things um, take certain timelines and why we need to start with the fundamentals and, and grow them over time. Nothing ever works out the way you planned, right? So you, you've got a contingency plan. But it's all about being educated, educating the, the constituencies, which include owners, include sponsors, broadcast partners, and fans. And, and that's, I believe, the role of the commissioner is to really take that leadership position and, and try to educate everyone and bring everyone into the into the mix in a collaborative way to, to, to share the information and make good decisions. A couple more. Nick Sakevich, Commissioner uh, uh, National Lacrosse League. Uh, without getting specific as to each one, you know, you've got Bettman, you got Rob Manfred, uh, new to the job. Gary Bettman is now the oldest tenured commissioner, which I remind him all the time. Uh, we've got uh, you know Roger and, and, and now Adam Silver, also new to the job. What common traits, as you assess those four and their successes and, and maybe negatives, what are the common traits that you see that you would like to emulate? Well, uh, listen, I know Adam uh, well. I um, have a huge amount of respect for him, obviously. I know Don Garber well. You know, we worked together and toiled for many years building, building Major League Soccer. I think the, the thing that I love most about those guys that I, that I know is that they really um, try to step back and be thoughtful when they make their decisions and, and not just make knee-jerk reactions and, or emotions. You know, our, our business is inherently emotional, and having spent most of my career on the team side, um, you know, I know the emotions that owners or presidents or GMs go through. But I, what I admire most about, you know, all those guys um, and the job that they have done is, is that they have a great ability to step back assess, look at all sides, and really attempt to make a fair and balanced decision. And, um, you know, each stepping into this role day one, I promised myself that I would try to try to adhere to that um, mantra and, and, and philosophy and, and just try to make, because every decision is not popular, right? You know, you've got to make very difficult ones and sometimes unpopular decisions. But I always want to make sure we take the time to think about it, to be thoughtful, to be strategic, consider, you know, the effect on the league, the effect on the individual teams, if those are individual teams that are involved in that decision, and just be thoughtful and, uh, and strategic about it. I think that's really, really important. And, and it, frankly, that can be said for any role of a business leader, whether it's a, a CEO, a president, an owner of a small business, or commissioner of a league. Where's the NLL in 10 years? The NLL in 10 years, um, oh, that's a long time, but it's also not a long time. Um, that's two five-year strategic plans from now, and <laughs> I really feel good uh, about our product. The product is insanely good, Rick. It's, uh, I was blown away by the quality of it and the, the juxtaposition of, of, of strength and power and, and hard-hitting with the finesse. It's, it's kind of like the best pieces of hockey and the best pieces of basketball put together. So our product quality is so, so good. And, I, and the entertainment value is so good. And obviously I'm a commissioner, so I, I'm biased in saying that. But actually, I'm a soccer guy that didn't know much about lacrosse at all. 
and I've just fallen in love with this game. It's, it's powerful. It's, it's terrific. Our athletes are amazing. So I can really envision this league being a 20-team league in 10 years and being, um, you know, one of, the, one of the major, you know, if you acquiesce the fifth spot to MLS today, I, I think we'll be a very, very solid, strong number six, maybe number five. Um, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be well on our way to having a strong you know, presence on linear and digital TV, and, and we'll, be, um, we'll be a leader in the professional sports world and not, uh, not a niche sport, not a minor league sport, but, um, but a major one. Realistic, intelligent, great businessman, moderate athlete, and good to call a friend. How's that? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's perfect. <laughs> Nick Sakevich, talk to you soon. Thank you very much, my friend. Thanks, Rick. Well, the NFL, uh, clearly one of the fastest-growing leagues, but you would make the argument that the NBA is right up there. Franchise values nearly $3 billion, certainly with the recent sale of the New Jersey Nets to Joe Tsai and the initial sale right after the beginning of the tenure of, of uh, Adam Silver of the Clippers to David Sterling uh, to Donald St- from Donald Sterling but uh, w- one of the th- to, one of the things that's really happening over time is the consistent and strident increase in value domestically and locally of the NBA staff has a significant reason for that and Mark Tatum a marketing guy an NBA guy an international guy um, one of the big reasons for that Here's Mark Tatum. We start this podcast, telecast, with a very unique individual. Sorry about the long introduction. No problem. Mark Tatum, Deputy Commissioner of the NBA, storied career, very important in the NBA. NBA couldn't do without him. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate that introduction. Appreciate it. I I set the stage for this finals, but give me a 30-second elevator speech about the health of the NBA. The health of the NBA has never been better. Here we have the two best teams in the NBA competing for a world championship between the Cleveland Cavaliers and LeBron James, multiple-time MVP, one of the best players to ever play the game, uh, versus these Golden State Warriors, the defending champions here in the Bay Area, uh, Steph Curry, the, the reigning MVP, and so it's just a terrific matchup that fans around the world are excited about. So around the world, we'll have an interesting broadcaster in a couple of minutes, but 215 countries, 47 languages, yes. where are you not now that you want to go? <laughs> we are everywhere in the world that we want to be, quite frankly, in 215 countries and territories. We have 100 players in our league who started on NBA rosters this year, and in this finals alone, there are nine international players from five different countries, so again, the, the international community is well represented in this finals and in the NBA. Mark Tatum, Deputy Commissioner NBA. You know what I find interesting, too, is you're always going to be prolific with corporate sponsorships. There's always the Coke-Pepsi deal. That came out well for you. There's always other deals, AB, that came out well for you. But to find Tissot as the official timer of the NBA and getting $200 million for that, that's pretty cool. Well, I think the thing that's so great about Tissot is that what we did is we came up with an idea together with them, and it was a business solution for our shot clocks. And so they have this expertise when it comes to timing and Swiss timing, and so we integrated them into our shot clock. They're uh, redoing our entire timing system, and so it was a true win-win relationship from an NBA perspective and from a marketing, branding, business perspective with Tiso. That is brilliant. Did Mark Tatum think of that? David Stern think of that? Or Adam Silver think of that? <laughs> it, it, it's a team.
team effort. It's right? a, it is absolutely a team effort. But we have been in discussions with them for uh, a little while. And, and again, with the, our approach with all these partners is really starting with what is it that you're trying to solve? What business problem can we help you solve? And that's how we came to this mutual conclusion. So just for kicks, you do a $24 billion nine-year television deal, ABC, ESPN, Turner, and the like. Um, the leverage you had was great, but to build the brand with television, especially in this world of vertical integration, that's not easy to do. Correct. And, and the, the nice thing about this is they are extensions of partnerships that we've had for a long time. Our partnership with Turner is one of the longest in the industry between a sports property and a TV network. And so we've been partners for many, many years with both ABC, ESPN, and TNT. And this really speaks to the value of live sports content. Do you like the jersey patches? I, I love the jersey patches. I think it's a great opportunity for global brands to get even more deeply involved with the NBA. I think that the thing that's going to be um, interesting about this and how it's going to benefit the fans is that there's going to be more of an investment from these companies who are investing in these jersey patches to promote the NBA, to promote the brand, to create experiences for consumers. You sold it on the basis of new found revenue as opposed to cannibalizing existing revenue sources, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is a new piece of inventory. We think this is going to bring new entrants into the category of sports marketing and specifically the NBA. Yeah. And the other issue, though, the huge elephant in the room, player salaries are up to $6 billion. It was 57%. It's now 51 We've got an opt-out opportunity a year and a half from now. Why would anybody want to opt out of this agreement? It's a great question. I mean, we're focused on this partnership. We're focused on growing revenue and growing the pie. Uh, and so we're having great conversations with Michelle Roberts, the executive director in the National Basketball Players Association, and we're hopeful that, um, that it won't come to that. In this age of political instability, let alone instability, uh, are the substantive issues uh, winning out? It, it sounds like the rhetoric is toned down a little bit from a year ago. Oh, very much so. Again, business is great. Um, uh, we have a terrific partnership with the Players Association. And so there are going to be tweets that uh, you know, both parties are, are always looking to make and have discussions about. Uh, but we're very optimistic about the future of our partnership with the Players Association. By the way, we are so lucky because when Mark comes, he brings Chase Kressel from NBA Communications, who, by the way, is our executive producer of this. He doesn't know it. we got two more interviews left. So he's going to be standing there holding that until his arms are sore. But that's what happens when you're with number two. So what do you say to, finally, to the worldwide audience who's watching this on Facebook and Reuters about where the NBA is and where it's going? Well, the NBA, like I said, this is the best it's ever been in terms of the competition on the court. Um, these players just compete at a level that is just amazing to watch. I, as a fan, am so excited to be here uh, and to watch these two teams compete. And I think the fans around the world are going to be treated to a wonderful contest tonight. By the way, Mark Tatum, um, academic entrepreneur, very successful in earlier life. Are you liking what you're doing? I love what I'm doing. It's, this is my dream job. I played sports growing up, played throughout college, and for me to be able to work in the business of sports, it's a dream come true. Kim Mandera from NBA Communications here. You know, interesting, when Mark walked over here, it's like the Pope, like the water party. It used to be Gary Bettman, by his own accord, is the longest-running commissioner of any league, and the National Hockey League uh, certainly has been honored by his commissionership. 
locks out the players, one of the early first things on the job, but has grown to a consistent and well-respected leader all over the NHL, in fact, all over sports. Contributor to our Sport Business Handbook, honored to hear Gary Bettman. Do you remember the song, I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston? Yes, I do. Well, let me tell you why it's important. When you were appointed as commissioner February 193, that was the song that was number one on the charts. It makes us feel both old, doesn't it? Actually, in the quiet moments when you and I together, you sing it to me on a regular basis. <laughs> you are a senior statesman in the league and senior statesman in sports. And when you went to Cornell undergrad and you were just getting through your career, did you ever think that that you'd ever be running a $4 billion hockey operation and be the longest-standing commissioner in the sport and longest-standing commissioner in North American sports? Well, you know, the answer to that question is very easy. If, if I were to say yes, you'd either think I was lying or insane. Uh, but the fact of the matter is no. You know, I went, I went to Cornell. I was in the School of Industrial and Labor Relations, had a wonderful, wonderful undergraduate experience there, went to NYU Law School, and went to one of the big New York firms. I, I had started out to be a lawyer. I was always a hockey fan. I was always a sports fan. But uh, I never imagined that that this is what things would turn into. Uh, the, the great news about being in sports, particularly being at, NHL, at the NHL, is you have an opportunity to, to forge relationships uh, with wonderful people, and that is what makes the job exciting, stimulating, and fun. All right, you can do it. Give me your 30-second elevator speech assessment of the overall health of the game. The game itself, what the players do night in and night out, has been nothing short of spectacular. Our competitive balance is probably the best, not only in our history, but in all professional sports, and you're witnessing that in these incredible playoffs. And the business of the game has never been stronger, never been bigger, and that's a testament, first and foremost, to having the best fans in all the sports. All right, let's get specific. Let's talk about TV. You got a couple of game sevens. You got a weekend to yourself. NBC TV is happy. Rogers is happy. Canada is happy. International is happy. What's up with TV? Television's good. It's making everybody happy. Uh, the coverage of the game, particularly in the United States, uh, has never been more extensive. NBC does a phenomenal job, both principally on NBC and on the NBC Sports Network. And in the early stages of the playoffs, they use their other outlets to ensure for the first time in our history over the last three, four years that every game of the playoffs is televised on a national basis in the United States. Uh, their promotion, their coverage, everything they do is first rate, and it's brought the game to more people in the United States than ever before. In Canada, you know, we, we are the preeminent television property, and Rogers is doing a phenomenal job giving fans wall-to-wall coverage. Uh, we are very fortunate to have two great partners for our national packages, both in Canada and the United States. Well, let's talk about Canada. You've got three of the top teams net worth-wise. You've got uh, enlightened management, exchange rate coming around. You've got good play. How have you turned it around in Canada? Well, first, first of all, we don't pay a whole lot of attention to the Forbes numbers on the valuations because they don't have access to the financials of any of the clubs. You know, it's a bit of a shot in the dark. I suppose, if anything, it shows trending, and the trending is that franchise values are higher than they've ever been. You know, when, when people focus on our game, 
When you look at it in Canada, uh, there's nothing comparable, I think, for any sport anywhere in the world to the relationship that our Canadian fans have to our game. And it's almost breathtaking to see that level of connection. And while we have great fans throughout the world and great fans, avid fans, I think more avid than any other sport in the United States, the fact is our fan base isn't as large as a percentage of the population in the U.S. as it is in Canada, but the fan base is growing. It's growing day by day. And, and that's a testament to the fans we have, to new technology, to what NBC has been doing and what we do with our sponsors and business partners. Which is more important to you, the fact that the revenue was about $400 bucks when you took over in 93 to nearly $4 billion now, that franchises are worth nearly a half a billion dollars now, up 20%, or that you've had labor peace since 2005? You know, I have a saying that, that drives people crazy around here that everything's related to everything else. The fact is, we, we were in 93, a little over 400 million. You know, we're approaching roughly 4 billion. You know, do the math. We've been talking about what the cap is likely to be. So, you know, it's in that ballpark. But the fact of the matter is, everything starts with the health of the game on the ice. And uh, we have a system that works, that creates incredible competitive balance, that gives fans of whatever team you want to root for the hope that your team can make the playoffs. And every team has that hope. And once you make the playoffs, anything can happen. And that's what we're witnessing. We're better able to connect fans to the game. We're getting more exposure and promotion, particularly in the United States, than ever before. And so all the pieces of the puzzle are important when you're growing the game and the business of the game. Is 30 teams too many or just about right? All of our teams are in the best shape they've ever been in. Couples still have some work to do, but our ownership situation is, is the strongest. Franchises are the most stable they've ever been. Let's talk international. You expanding, obviously, across the pond, but our Thomson Reuters audience ought to know and wants to know, what about the Olympics? What's your process today? We haven't given much thought to the Olympic process. We're currently focused on bringing back the World Cup, which we'll do in September of 16, and that'll be a great tournament. We do international efforts, events, in conjunction with the Players Association. We're joint ventures in doing that. And uh, over the last few years, until Don Fear took over, the union as executive director, there was a lot of instability, so we weren't able to pursue many of the initiatives that we wanted to. Now that the uh, union is stabilized, we're working together, and I think the World Cup will be the foundation that's our jumping-off point for doing a whole lot of other things. We're a sport with a great history and tradition relative to uh, international play and international competition, more so than perhaps any of the other North American sports leagues. Roughly 25% of our players, some of the most elite players in in the world come from outside of North America, and we're, we're going to uh, make sure that our reach continues to grow outside of North America. You get along with Don Fear? Are you planning for the future now? Yeah, no, we, we're, we're in the midst of a long-term collective bargaining agreement. The union has never been stronger or more stable uh, in recent years, and that's a good thing. And so uh, we're able to work together and engage in a number of initiatives that will uh, benefit fans and hopefully grow the game as well. You're known as a franchise bulldog. You save franchises that are that are worth saving. You'll go to bat for those markets like uh, Phoenix, but it doesn't always work. Uh, look at Atlanta uh, going to Winnipeg. Uh, in that context, what about the Florida Panthers? Florida's in a rebuild. Uh, there, there were some fundamental things that had to be 
addressed and fixed. And the good news is under Vinny Viola's ownership, the commitment and the resources are there to put the right things in place. The team is more competitive than it's been in some time, and the response from the community has been quite strong. Which criticism do you find most unfair, even if it's inaccurate, that you've attempted to Americanize the game to the detriment of Canada, or that you expand into the Sun Belt at the expense of more traditional hockey markets in Canada or the northern U.S.? You know, I don't pay a whole lot of attention to that. The fact of the matter is we're trying to make the game stronger, bigger, uh, everywhere it is. The fact is I was instrumental in instituting the Canadian Assistance Program in the late 90s, early 2000s when, when there were problems with the Canadian franchises. We want the game strong wherever it is. We're excited about the, the future prospects of our game everywhere. We focus foremost on the places where we are, which are Canada and the United States, and whatever else we may do, including worldwide, we, we know where the priority is. So if you were commissioner for a day and you could wave a magic – oh, oh, you, you are commissioner for longer than a day. So if you wave a magic wand and you didn't have to worry about building consensus, what major change would you make? I don't know. I mean, the fact of the matter is that, that that's fantasy land. There are no magic wands. Things require consensus. There's no magic bullets in anything. It's all about hard work. It's a great time to be a hockey fan, and that's what uh, drives me more than anything else. Are you traveling less and enjoying life more? Uh, traveling lots and enjoying life. I love what I do, and while travel's part of what I do, it's not something that, that I find to be unduly burdensome. Uh, it's fun to get out, see uh, how organizations present their games in their own arenas, to interact with fans everywhere we go. That, that's part of the fun of what I get to do. Where is Gary Bettman five years from now? Uh, if I feel the way I do today... I think there's a song that goes like that. I'll still be doing the same thing. I love what I do. It's, it's, it's fun. It's interesting. It's a great challenge. And there are great opportunities. And as long as the Board of Governors is, is happy with me and I have the same level of interest and energy and commitment, then we'll keep doing this. Paul Tagliabue, commissioner for over 16 years, a Covington and Burling lawyer, came up through the ranks. And during his time, the NFL grew in value, where at the same period, it significantly outstripped the New York stock market. Obviously, franchises, international, television, labor peace, many things Paul Tagliabue can give us. He certainly, as a contributor to our sport business handbook, gave me some very significant perspective. Here's Paul Tagliabue. So 69, 20 years in, at Covington and Burling, um, you actually began the pioneering of corporate lawyer working for a league to commissioner uh, David Stern, Gary Bettman. Talk about the transition. And at some point when you were a lawyer, did you ever think, boy, I'm going to run this league? To the last point, the answer is no. I never thought I would run the league. And, uh, you know, the transition was, was really fairly easy because I w had been immersed for 20 years as outside counsel. But maybe more important, I had a great teacher and, and tutor in Pete Rozelle. So he, he, he let me know how to do things, and I followed his, his playbook. Over the last 20 years, if you invested in an NFL franchise, had the capability of doing it, your values would go up year over year, according to Forbes, about 11.6%. If you invested in the stock market, the Standard & Poor's, it would go up 4.5%, testament to the structure, but also your leadership. Go run the stock market. But more important than that is that you have a viable business, and its biggest metric for owners is increase in franchise values. What do you, what, what's your perspective on that? Well, my perspective is that we were fortunate in the, in the 90s mostly, but also in the beginning of the 
the 21st century to, to get some things in place that had to be put in place. One, one of the most important was, this, was free agency and the salary cap. Another was uh, diversification in television, you know, moving beyond ABC, CBS, and NBC and moving into cable in an intelligent way, leaving most of the games on broadcast television, moving into with ESPN, moving with DirecTV into the satellite, and taking advantage of the technology that exploded in the 80s and 90s. And now the explosion is really accelerating. How about gambling? When I was working with you and we talked about how to put the core of stadium financing together, there was the admonition of, you know, we have a Chinese wall relative to, to uh, um, uh, uh, Indian land, Indian gaming, casino sponsorships, Vegas. The whole issue is now clearly blurred and the Raiders are going to Vegas, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, where is the, where's the, when was the tipping point when all of this was acceptable or was it gradual and, and how, where's, the, where's the ceiling? Are we going to have uh, uh, casinos in, in stadiums, for example? Well, I think the tipping point has come about because of a couple of things. Number one is the public acceptance of gambling. Uh, going back in time, there wasn't that level of public acceptance that there is today, it, it, sometimes for considerations of public policy, sometimes for personal considerations about what's a, what's a, what is gambling representative yeah. other than the tax on the, on the low-income people in the United States. But secondly, I think is the technology and, and the transparency of gambling as it is today. And you know, I've talked to people who said that the, the concern about athletes being induced to fix games or throw games, which happened to me when I was playing at Georgetown. We had a game where the other, the other side took money from bookies to not to beat the point spread. Uh, the feeling is that that can be managed now with the transparency and the data analysis that's available. So. I think those two things on parallel tracks contributed to the tipping point, which the Supreme Court not only reached the tipping point, but hit it with a hammer with its recent decision saying that the, the federal law that limited gambling to one state or two states was, was not legal. And look how prolific the revenues will be, even relative to team valuations in the future. I hear a lot of different estimates. Some of them are sky high, some of them are not so sky high. It's going to depend on uh, whether there is congressional legislation and what kinds of restrictions and limitations are put on put on the gambling on sports. Totally understood. So, ladies and gentlemen, here is an exclusive that you probably didn't know before, but I have visual evidence. Um, I found you in South Africa researching the viability of an NFL expansion team uh, in Cape Town. Is that is that is that correct? Well, you found me in Cape Town uh, in June of this year, and I was very interested in uh, football down there and uh, what the great game that Nelson Mandela yeah. talked about and, and the ability of sports, including football, to bring people together. But it was not uh, for an NFL expansion. No, I, I, of course I'm kidding, but we, we you know, is a world coincidence. We found each other on respective uh, trip to Robben Island. But a segue into uh, – it was great – seeing you there, but the segue into expansion, uh, NFL in, in, in London, NFL in Canada, NFL in Mexico, um, NFL has one-off games. Talk about that generally. Well, you know, I think that the, uh, the one-off games are likely to continue for a while, maybe for a long while, because the idea of having a division uh, outside of the United States with long-distance travel, I, I don't think is realistic. And it may not be realistic in the current environment to think of a league that's got more than 32 teams. So I think the, the London experiment might be extended to Europe. I've read about the possibility of games in Germany, which was the heart of NFL Europe when we had it. But uh, I think that uh, it's not gonna, you're not going to see 
divisions and conferences outside the United States. What you could see would be feeder leagues mm -hmm. in Canada, Mexico, and Europe over time. And I think that would be a great thing for the sport. Uh, World League of American Football too, basically? Yes. Or something like that. Something like that. Yeah, okay. All right, let's go off the field for a couple of minutes. We talked uh, earlier in, in life about the new rules and what's happening and, and – uh, you know, are we are we tackling right the roughing the passer issues? Talk a little bit about that. Well, I think the start when you discuss those issues, you have to start with the competition committee, and the competition committee has been a great feature of the NFL structure. You know, some fans know it well; they could tell you who's on the competition committee. They can tell you when it meets. They probably read its reports today online. So, but I think that that's been a key to the growth of the game, to changes in the game, the swing from a, a game that was predominantly running to a game that's predominantly passing. And I, and I think the other huge factor, aside from how the competition committee has been an effective steward of the rules of the game, is the change in the athletes. Athletes today are very different from athletes 40 years ago, just in terms of size, skill, speed, and, and, and a sense of invulnerability that comes from being looking like bionic men and the equipment that they're using. So you have to take all those things into account as you look at the rules changes. Um, talking about basketball, Georgetown, uh, you – Congratulations, by the way. And nobody knows this, but but he is the the other thirty three on the Georgetown University basketball team. You're in the Hall of Fame. Congratulations. Well, number thirty three is in the Hall of Fame, which was the number that I wore when I played at Georgetown. So who else? So somebody else wore it. It was also worn by Patrick Ewing, and uh, I only got in the Hall of Fame after he wore it, not me. Got it. Understood. But you had the rebound record for a long time at Georgetown. Yes. Right? Yes. And, and and also more relevant to this. Through 2008 to 11, you were you were chairman of the board of trustees and on the board for a long time. So you have a perspective of college athletics that few people do. Overall take of where college athletics is today and where it's going. Well, I think overall college college athletics are are solid and uh, an important part of uh, the you know higher education. I think that the balance between academics and and commerce could use some tweaking. And uh, as you know, I'm a member of the Knight Commission, and the Knight Commission has been working with the NCAA to, to try and have an influence on redirecting some of the revenues that come from athletics to, to broader purposes. And, and I think the other aspect that needs more attention is the, the scholarship system, because the athletes, especially in Division One football and basketball, are committing so much time now to athletics. I think the scholarship should be more than four years. It might be five, five, six, or even seven years. And the athletes should be rewarded in ways that that take account of their academic performance, not just their performance in football or basketball. And that would apply to both men and women's sports. What's the biggest change since you've left that you've noticed, structurally, on-field, off-field, whatever? Well, I think the biggest change for the NFL and for the other professional and amateur sports, for that matter, the collegiate, is is the way media has exploded and the, and the way media has become uh, available to everybody through, through the internet technology and digital technology and, and the proliferation of devices that we referred to earlier. The social media has become a major factor in the way people communicate at all levels, in all contexts, and, 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 it, and it exposes everybody to criticism on a targeted basis. And as we found out in the last year or two, it can also be manipulated and misused by foreign countries. So I think if, I think if you look at, like, as I said, when I left, the iPhone and, and social media like Facebook hadn't even started up. Now they, they dominate our daily lives. You can't be in a conversation without someone saying, well, let me look, let me, let me look at my phone and see what the answer to that is. That's a, that's a big change. If and when you sit down with Roger Goodell, 
do you basically tell him the game is in good hands, or do you say we've got to make the following changes? No, I, my my perspective with Rogers, I think the game is in good hands, and uh, you know the the game on the field is really strong, and that that's the critical thing, and that's a, that's a tribute to the college game. It's a tribute to the players in the NFL who have not been changed by the money that's in the game today. The salaries they get, you still have people competing as if it's a life and death competition, which in some cases, uh, for, for people's employment, it is can be the end of a career uh, because they get cut. But the game is fantastic. The, the number of young, really good young quarterbacks right now is exciting. You've done okay with yourself for the first 70 plus years of your life. What about the next 70 plus? I'm looking at the next 70 plus, <laughs> not the next 70. I, 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 I just want to keep looking at the life through the front windshield and not through the rearview mirror. That's been my philosophy since I retired, and I, I think it's been worthwhile. The game is in good hands, and I'm incredibly honored to have you here. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. On August 4, Don Garber begins his second 20 years as commissioner of the MLS. Coming from the NFL, from a marketing perspective and background, he has significantly increased the value of MLS franchises, grown soccer in North America on the kids' level, on the girls' level, and certainly his MLS platform, expanding into a number of teams that will reach 30 in the not-too-distant future. Here's Don Garber. So, Commissioner, it's really important. Two things. Congratulations. First of all, being in the sport business handbook, which is more important to me than it is to you, but there are a lot of other people in there. And second of all, August 4, 20 years. Yeah. So, August 4, 1999, any idea that you'd be here 20 years from now presiding over a league where the average franchise value is $240 million and probably more because Forbes always underestimates? Yeah, I mean, never. I never expected it, Rick. So, it's been a great 20-year ride. It's been hard. Uh, but enormously fulfilling. The league's in a great spot. Thanks to our owners and you know, all the people that believe in Major League Soccer, from our fans to our players to all of our administrators. Well, watching the dynamic of a meeting like this and just sitting back and watching how you comfortably preside as any veteran commissioner slash CEO would preside over a group that has ultimate confidence in you. Uh, it, it's got to be rewarding where, I don't want to minimize it, but a lot of this is on automatic pilot and you can say something in a meeting and people will understand that that's the way it is without questioning it. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> I think it's getting, theory, it's getting better. You know, the longer you're in it, I remember David Stern yeah. once told me that you know, his life got easy when every single team that was around the table he had brought in. Yeah. So you have a relationship with uh, with those clubs from the time they're interested in coming into Major League Soccer through their purchase process to their ongoing engagement with their uh, with their club and with their city. So, you know, I know them all. I've known them all for a long time. When the other leagues, and I'm really not, this is not about comparing you to the other leagues, although we could make a great pro rata case over the last 20 years. We won't do that because you're not going to you're not going to take the bait. 20 stadiums, seven new stadiums, $3 billion in construction, your people say. And when other commissioners take the lead, it's a, well, we got existing stadiums, so we'll get around to trying to figure it out. You were kind of on the hot seat early. You understood how important stadiums were to your deal, and you had to get a public-private partnership done in a model that it never worked before. Yeah, I mean, for sure, Rick. I mean, that is the story of our league over the last 20 years. Certainly one of the big stories. You know, billions and billions and billions of dollars invested in infrastructure, not just stadiums, but training grounds. And, uh, you know, that creates permanence and it creates a home for our fans and our players. And so the whole thing also, it's not just marketing, but it's substance behind marketing. Did you ever think 
that James Harden would be a significant piece of driving up the enterprise value of the MLS? I never did, and I'm happy he has. <laughs> it's amazing. But, but it happens all over the country, Fun, right? Cool. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely. And so television issues, Eric Shanks here today, other television executives understand as well the, the whole issue of where the television's going. But yet, there's more product. There's more diversity. There's Sinclair. There's RSNs, and that whole that whole world. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't where the live the content business live content's driving a lot of the energy in the over the top OTT world. Uh, the fact that we have a very young fan base that's very sanguine in the world of digital absorption and engagement. Uh, I think it bodes well for us. One more comment that's interesting after watching you as a veteran adeptly, incredibly adeptly, adeptly uh, uh, fielding expansion questions relative to the people that, notwithstanding the fact you're not going to give it, want a commitment, not only today and where and how much and whatever, but it's got to be heartening to know that you got you got m way more bidders and way more interest than you have spots. Yeah, I think it's a credit, Rick, to where soccer in America is, you know, that it's a good value proposition for those who are interested in investing in sports. The sport is on the rise. We've got the World Cup coming in in 2026. We've got lots and lots of energy around Major League Soccer, and you put all those things together, and successful people who've got money to invest and have a passion for sport and a particular passion for soccer, it seems to be a really good opportunity for them. Yes and no. I mean, the no is, yeah, it's, it's the environment of soccer, but over the last 10 years, you go from 30 million expansion fee to 300. What's that number? It's a, it's a big, like, it's 100,000%. I don't know what the number is, but it's a pretty significant percent, and it's market-driven. Yeah, I mean, it, it is driven by sort of the, the increase in opportunity. Yeah. I don't think it's just about bidders. I've heard that story before. I don't care how many bidders you have. Yeah, if something's not valuable, substance. really smart people are not going to bid on it. Just right. because there are a lot of them doesn't mean that it's going to drive up prices. Right? That's just basic economics. A couple of quickies. What, what do you say when people point to the $3.5 billion value of like Real Madrid and Barcelona and Man U, um, and they say the value here is – smaller obviously you got 30 teams I mean, it's the it's, largest it's, uh, yeah. it, it, it speaks to the opportunity yeah. Rick. i mean if yeah. you can own a soccer team and and uh in in a in la liga in spain or own it in england with arsenal then they're going to be valuable part of it is because of the popularity of the sport we're going to work hard to make mls more popular so our teams become more valuable so in 2026 when the world cup is here are you still running mls uh i doubt that Wow, that was a pretty, pretty damn candid answer. <laughs> I think I probably got more of a candid answer than you give to anybody else. But obviously, the league continues to move yeah. forward in the legacy. Yeah. Well. yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know that there's been – I mean, I think that would be, what, almost 30 years or something like that. I don't see that happening. Yeah, well, but you've created an incredible legacy. No, it would, so. be, uh, yeah, it would be 28 years. So That's a long time. It's, 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 a, it's a long time for anything. So 100 of the greatest uh, – 50 years of the sports business, 100 people. Um, again, I really, really, really appreciate and am honored that you're in this book, and the book is, uh, is better for having you in it. Great. Finally, in our best of, Rob Manfred succeeded Bud Selig, and he, he knew labor, but people didn't realize how adroit Rob Manfred has been in the marketing world, an obviously very important perspective as the labor piece continues, franchise values grow, uh, internet uh, grows to a, an entirely different level stadium development as well. Got to solve Oakland, got to solve Tampa, but Rob Manfred certainly is up to it. Here's Rob Manfred. Commissioner Rob Manfred, so it's September of 1959 and it's your first birthday party and you're sitting there, I assume, in Rome, New York. And were you thinking at that time that you'd end up being commissioner of baseball 50 or so years later? Uh, I'll be honest with you. I didn't think I was going to be commissioner of baseball when I went to work 
for MLB in 1998 and probably didn't even think that 10 years later. It was really not my goal. Um, when I went to work for baseball, I was focused on improving what had been a, a really sorry state of labor relations, and that was really my goal. It's not an otherly comparison, but it is an interesting uh, parallel career track with basketball and hockey and, and football that, uh, at least with Paul Tagliabue and, of course, Gary and David Stern, you don't start out intending to be commissioner. You start out at a law firm. You end up working for that league through that law firm, and then the rest is history. Interesting dynamic, isn't it? It is. It is. I, I think that um, you've seen a change yeah. in that area. Um, I mean, I think at one point in history, uh, it was common for leagues to take outsiders, outside yeah. lawyers, whatever. Um, I see the current generation of commissioners a little bit different. Adam, myself, Roger, all came up through the ranks. I mean, I started as an outside lawyer, but I was there for 14 years inside before I was elected. Is there an automatic time where you raise your hand and say, all right, it's been 14 years, I paid my dues, here it is. Adam, a little bit, Roger, six to 18 years and counting? Yeah, it, no, I mean, I, look, it, it happens organically, right? I mean, people start to talk about it in the business, people start to write about it, and that's really how you become a candidate. You are, at this point, um, one of the valuable perceptions is not a whole lot of people know you, and I don't mean that as a negative, but there's certainly advantages not to be the lightning rod. Mm -hmm. Give us an idea of of what you do day to day, the important stuff you do day to day. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm a routine person yeah. um, in terms of my daily activities. Um, you know, I try to begin the day with some exercise. Um, I'm pretty religious about that. Um, during the season, I get to the office. The first thing I do is review the replays from the night before. Mm. Uh, I think our replay system is a fantastic piece of technology, and um, it, it is actually fun to look at the videos and decide whether I could have gotten it right with or without uh, super slow motion. Um, and then, you know, my in a routine day in the office, um, I spend a lot of time with my six direct reports. I have a lot of really strong people. Um, that work with me on a day-to-day -day basis and you know if I can get through the six of them in a day I have a pretty good idea about what's going on in the business. And, and so Bud Selig among his other wonderful legacy items he was known as a, a great communicator mm -hmm. and the rumor was he talked to every owner every day not possible there's not enough time to do all of that <laughs> how important is is communicating certainly it's important to know what the owners want mm -hmm. but how important is direct communication to the owners? Uh, direct communication with the owners is crucial I mean there, there's 30 of them they are your constituency um, I keep a, a little tracking sheet so that, you know, if somebody goes a while and I haven't spoken th mm. to them in the ordinary course, just routine business, I do try to reach out and make sure that, that, that I've been in touch with each of the 30 in relatively short periods of time. Once a day, I think was an exaggeration with Bud and probably <laughs> not possible for me in terms of work schedule. We do try to communicate different ways. Um, you, you know, uh, we have taken to a uh, monthly update for our owners directed specifically to them as to what we're doing in the office, what's going on, what we think's happening in the industry. Um, and I do use email and more modern forms of communication that Bud was not enamored of. What, what do you think your your legal and, and business role is relative to the labor union? Your bosses are the owners, right? And are your labor are they partners or are they allies? They're certainly not adversaries relative to labor peace these days. So right. characterize. Look, we, I think we have a positive traditional. Yeah 
union management relationship with the MLBPA. Um, we've worked very hard within the normal construct of labor relations that, that, that's laid out under federal law to have a positive working relationship um, to foster the notion among our players that working together is the best way to grow the business. And so you've been obviously involved with baseball. Let me get the, the numbers right. 28 years, but, but, but full-time, 18? Um, 19. Yeah. No, I started full-time in 98, so 17 years. And then CEO for a little brief time right. until that was redefined. Um, uh, what have you discovered as commissioner that you didn't expect? Well, I think the, the most the two things that, that really have struck me. Number one, you have to be so much more careful about what you say, particularly what you say publicly. Um, you know, in the various roles that I had since I came inside, I would do public things, but people didn't pay that much attention to them. Um, you, you know, now you, you have to be real careful uh, about what you say. And secondly, it's just the time demands are very, very different. Um, it uh, th There's a certain sort of public aspect to the job, um, but I am am and remain a task person. You know, I, there are things that, that I need to get done in the office, and balancing those two things is tricky. It's that linear thinking that, that we're taught as lawyers. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. That's the bottom line. There's a problem, you got to solve it. Right, <laughs> got to solve it. Let's do real quick, because um, you can't solve all of these today, but let's do uh, um, rapid-fire substance for a couple okay. of minutes. Um, Hall of Fame, uh, steroid user Hall of Fame issues long term? I um, think it's a writer issue. Um, there's always been issues with respect to individual players that the writers have to sort out, and that's their job. Oakland A's, San Jose, Bay Area stadium issues? Uh, Want to see a new facility, preferably in Oakland. Uh, World Baseball Classic? Huge fan of the World Baseball Classic. I think it's a key to the internationalization of the game and intend to continue to grow the product. 154 game schedule? A uh, huge economic issue for us, uh, lost TV revenue, lost gates, but something that's at least worth thinking about. Length of games? I think that it is a topic that we will continue to work on. I think we're off to a great start on it. Great player cooperation this year has produced good results. Can you hit a curveball? No. Okay. <laughs> what excites you about baseball? You're a fan? I'm a huge fan. Um, you know, I'll tell you, the, the first experience that I had walking into a ballpark was uh, walking up into the bowl and seeing the actual field at Yankee Stadium. How old I was 10 mm -hmm. at the time. It was 1968. Is the most important thing you want baseball fans to know about you? What I think, uh, I want fans to come to understand that we're open to discussing change in the game. Um, we're prepared to consider new ideas, and we're also prepared to admit that some of the ideas we may have out there don't turn out to be right. So it, January 25 this year was your your uh, your, your D-Day. Right. It was nice. It was a Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's hard to know what to do on that Sunday. Yeah, but the media found you anyway. <laughs> right. So the fifth year anniversary of your commissionership, so 2020, mm -hmm. uh, what will you have done? I, I hope that um, we will have reclaimed um, the next generation for baseball. I think the most important challenge for us is to make sure that we pass on to the next generation of fans baseball the way that our parents passed it on to us. Try to hit that curveball, it's going to help you. I will. We'd like to thank all of our special best of guests in a, a special edition, not only thanks to, to Andrew Luck, but Oliver Luck to Nick Sakevich, uh, Mark Tatum, Gary Bettman, Paul Tagliabue, uh, Don Garber, and Rob Manfred, all giving us reasons why all of these leagues are in very good hands. We'd like to thank you for listening and joining us next week when we go 
be on the scoreboard.